Big problems require a big God. Big problems require a big God. That is what the book of Isaiah from chapter one all the way to chapter 66 is all about. It is simply that our God saves. This book will show us that ultimately what the world needs came through the Messiah, through Jesus. At the most basic level, the Messiah comes to solve the problem of our sinful rebellion against God by offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But there's more. God doesn't just aim to save individuals. No, God aims to save the entire created order. His plan involves a new Jerusalem, a new heaven, and a new earth. It's a glorious and gracious and redemptive plan. But there's one major challenge, and it's one that I'm sure you are familiar with. It is this, that God's people, in the midst of this glorious plan, often fail to see the danger of their problems, or they turn to the wrong solutions for their problems. People who have big problems need a big God. The problem is often people, we don't know we have big problems, and we don't remember that we have a big God. Just think back of your life. Think how many mistakes that you've made were simply the result of not realizing the seriousness of your problem. Or you realized the seriousness of the problem, but you looked to the wrong solution. Today's Father's Day. You know what good dads do? Good dads help their children understand what is dangerous help them understand a potential problem, and then point them to a right solution. After eight years, I'm back in the fatherly driver's training mode. It's remarkable how faith-building that season is. And, you know, driver's training is simply the identification of the right problem. Anticipating all of the bad drivers and how much road rage exists post-COVID on the road. Isaiah 3 to 5 is a preface to the entire book, helping to identify the problems of mankind and the solution that is found in the Messiah. Now next week, I'm going to preach my favorite chapter in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. It shows us Isaiah's vision of God and his call to ministry. And then in the month of July, we're going to take a break from Isaiah, and we're going to be studying Psalm 23 for about four weeks, and then rejoin our study together in August. You might wonder why. Well, because most of us are taking vacations in July. I see all your pictures. You're going to amazing places. I'm quite jealous of where you're going, by the way. Um, and I want to be able to study Isaiah together, sort of as the start of the new year, or the new school year in August. So today follows a familiar line of argument that we're going to see through the book of Isaiah, which is this, there's judgment and there's hope, and Isaiah offers this judgment and hope paradigm as a warning. So today I want to help you to see this text by identifying three questions. What's the problem, where's the hope, and what's the warning? So the problem, the hope, and the warning. Here's point one, what's the problem? Look at chapter three. Isaiah says this, behold, 
the Lord God of hosts is taking away from Jerusalem and from Judah support and supply. That's the problem. God is trying to get the attention of his people and they aren't listening. There's this massive disconnect between how they worship and how they live. You wanna see this clearly? Look at chapter one and verse 13, where he says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me, new moons and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. God says to his people, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. The thing that's wrong with Israel in this moment is they're coming to temple worship, they're saying things about God, but their lives don't match what they're saying. Their worship is completely disconnected from how they're living and the people are okay with that. It's become normative. Their hypocrisy has become cultural and God is trying to win them back to himself. And as a result, he's calling them to turn to him. You see, this disconnect between their worship and their way of life doesn't happen in a vacuum. Our, your, my disconnect between worship and how we live doesn't happen in a vacuum. Meaning, it's not just that we don't trust in God, it is that we trust in other things. So what does God do? In chapter three, he takes away the things that the people trust in. Why? in order to remind them that big problems require a big God. Chapter three, verse one says, the Lord of hosts is taking away support and supply. One of God's strategies is to remove the good things upon which we place too much trust. In verses one to three, we find a, a list of all the things that we place our trust in. And these things are good, they're not bad things, but that's the problem. Good things become God things when we place too much trust in them. So he says that he's going to remove from them support and supply, all support of bread and all support of water. Verse two, the mighty man and the soldier, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50, the man of rank, the counselor, the skillful magician, and the expert in charms. See, these are things that all go into the ingredients of what makes a stable society, and God is removing them in order to remind his people that these things, while important, are not very good gods. He removes these things in order to show them the things that they are putting their trust in. Several years ago, David Pollison wrote a groundbreaking article for the Council of Biblical, or the Journal of Biblical Counseling. The article is entitled, The Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. He helped biblical counselors to make the connection between the Old Testament concept of idolatry and the New Testament concept of sinful desires. Here's what he wrote. If idolatry is the characteristic and summary Old Testament word for our drift from God, then desires, epithemia, is the characteristic and summary New Testament word for the same drift. Both are shorthand for the problem of human beings. The New Testament merges the concept of idolatry and the concept of inordinate life-ruling desires. Idolatry becomes a problem of the heart, a metaphor for human lust, craving, yearning, and greedy demand. Now, why is this important? 
because we could read the Old Testament and think, how could Israel have all those idols? And not think, man, do we have a lot of idols. Friend, an idol is just simply what you love more than God. It's the thing that you can't live without. It's the thing that when it's removed from your life, you think life isn't worth living anymore. Or it's the thing that ticks you off when you lose it. It's the thing that makes you sad, like despairing and depressed when you don't have it in your life. It's the thing that you must have. But what you need to know is that idolatry is not just an individual issue. It is certainly that, but it's also a societal, a corporate issue, which is why Paulison brilliantly entitles his article, Idols of the Heart and Vanity Fair. Why Vanity Fair? He's referring to the market in Pilgrim's Progress where Christian, in his journey, is offered all kinds of pleasures to take him off of his path. Vanity Fair is the culture, the environment in which Christian lives, and the culture is rife with idols. Paulson says this, Bunyan's entire book, And the Vanity Fair section in particular can be seen as portraying the interaction of powerful, enticing, and intimidating social shapers of behavior with the self-determining tendency of Christian's own heart. Will Christians serve the living God or any of a fluid multitude of idols crafted by his wife, neighbors, acquaintances, enemies, fellow members of idolatrous human society, and ultimately his own heart? What is Paulison saying there? It's important for Isaiah, for you to understand what's happening. It's this, that our individual idols collude with other people's idols. I've jokingly, this happens in marriage, in family, in church, in society, in culture. I've jokingly said to my wife that our idols like one another. Maybe you know somebody who keeps getting into bad relationship after bad relationship after bad relationship, and you wonder, why does he keep going after women like that? Or why does she keep being attractive to that kind of guy? Or why do they hang around those kind of friends? Because the controlling idol of one person needs the insecurity idol of another, and those idols combine, and they use each other. Or the idol to be needed combines with another person's idol to fix people, combine, and suddenly now you have a marriage fundamentally based on idolatry. That's not just true of marriage. That's true of friends. That can be true of how you interact with people at work. That's true of the entire society. Now, why is that important for Isaiah? Here's why. Because the idols of individuals and the idols of a society which is merely the collection of individual idols, they're all linked together. They feed off of one another, and they facilitate each other. And one of the ways, listen, that God brings discipline, and one of the ways that he brings judgment in order to wake his people up is he removes those idols such that people don't know what to do in hope that they will realize, I have big problems, and I need a big God. So Isaiah chapter 3 deals with this problem of idolatry. It also deals with the problem of our waywardness. You see, what God often does in order to convince us of our idols is not just to remove them. In some cases, he gives us all of what we think we want only to help us to realize, why do I want this? Look at verse 4. 
Notice the things here, verses four through seven, that he gives them. Verse four, I will make boys their princes and infants shall rule over them. Alec Moiter, an Old Testament scholar, says that this is referring not just to leaders who are young in age, but he says, quote, immature leaders with the unpredictability and thoughtless cruelty of children. God gives people leaders that act like kindergartners. Verse five, self-centered oppression becomes widespread. People will oppress one another. Everyone is fellow and everyone is neighbor. Next, there's a lack of respect for those who are older, for the elderly, and for those who should be honored in verse five. The youth will be insolent to the elder and the despised to the honorable. Verse six, we see that the qualifications for leadership are greatly diminished. Verse six, one man will take hold of another brother in the house of his father saying, well, you have a cloak, you be our leader. The qualifications for leader is, do you have a jacket? I do, great, you're our leader. And then in verse seven, no one wants to be a leader. In that day, he will speak out saying, I will not be a healer. In my house, there is neither bread nor cloak. You shall not make me the leader of the people. So the idea is that one little stick at a time, God's pulling apart the fabric of their society, helping them to see who they really are and what their idols are like. In verses eight through chapter four and verse one, it probes even deeper. In verse eight, we learn that Jerusalem has stumbled because of her words and her actions against the Lord. She says wrong things, she does wrong things. They don't fit with the presence of God's glory. Verse nine tells us that they have no shame over their sin. And as a result, God takes them to court. He lays out their, his case against them. Verses 14 to 15, the leaders oppress people. They crush them and enrich themselves. It says in verse 14, it is you who have devoured the vineyard. The spoil of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people, by grinding the face of the poor, declares the Lord of hosts? Verses 16 and 17, we see that the women in particular are haughty and sensuous. It says, because the daughters of Zion are haughty, they walk with outstretched necks and glance wantingly with their eyes, mincing as they go, tinkling with their feet. God then takes away the things that make them attractive. That's what the scripture reading was about in verses 18 through 22. He removes the finery of the anklets, the headbands. And this chapter ends with a pretty dark picture. Look at verse 24. It says, instead of perfume, there will be rottenness. Instead of a belt, a rope. Instead of a well-set hair, there will be baldness. Instead of a rich robe, a skirt of sackcloth. The branding instead of beauty. Your men shall fall by the sword. Your mighty men in battle and her gates shall lament and warn, mourn. Empty, she shall sit on the ground. And notice just the desperation. Seven women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own bread. We will wear our own clothes. Just let us be called by your name. This is the picture of God's people. It is that their idolatry has gotten the best of them and God is putting the pressure of divine discipline on them in order for them to see they have big problems and they need a big God. Now pulling back from chapter three, can I just remind you that God does the same thing today. If you're a Christian, you can probably look back on your life and you can see the ways that the Lord has used the loss in your life to get your attention, to refine you, to help you to see 
the idols of your heart. And maybe that you're listening to the sermon today and you're not yet a Christian and some difficulty in your life, some problem, some pain has actually caused you to even be here or listening to this sermon because you're searching and it was some blunt force trauma in your life that waked you, woke you up to realize, I've got some questions and I don't know where to go. As we walk through the book of Isaiah, it's important that we not create too much emotional distance from Israel and us today. You see, because until Jesus returns, listen, idolatry will not have an expiration date. Until he returns, idols are always a problem. It is our collective human problem. It always has been, it always will be, and the glory of the new heaven and the new earth is we'll have one idol. His name will be Jesus, and there'll be no desires to go after anything else. We'll have no problems, and one big God, and we'll see Jesus for all that he is, and we won't ever desire the wrong things ever again. Can't you wait? So can I ask you this last week, is there anything in your life that just got too much control over you last week. We did a little exercise with our staff this last week, Tuesday. We had lunch together and then answered three questions. What makes you mad? What makes you sad? And what makes you glad? We wrote those out, distributed them, and then had to guess whose cards represented which person. And in my group, we were 100% accurate which means we're probably a little too obvious with what makes us mad, sad, or glad. But going through that was actually quite revealing because often the things that we want, the idols, are connected to what makes us mad, sad, or glad. You know what an idol is? An idol is anything that just has too much emotional control over you. An idol is simply something that has greater intimacy with you than God, something you think about, something that consumes you, something you read about, something you research, something you want. And Israel's problem is still our problem. And sometimes God loves us enough to say, you love this too much, I'm taking it away. If you're in one of those spots today, can I just encourage you that God loves you enough to not let you go your own way. And rather than kicking and screaming and getting mad against the way that God's removing things, maybe this text is just a reminder that, hey, maybe God loves you and wants to get your attention. So that's the problem. Then what's the hope? Isaiah immediately now turns to this beautiful hope. And again, this becomes a microcosm of the entire book. There's gonna be longer sections when it's all about judgment, longer sections when it's all about hope, but in chapters three to five, we just see this little microcosm of what the entire book is all about, and we get the glimpse of what the hope of Israel and our hope is. He says in verse two, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord. He talks about this small little branch who's gonna usher in a new kind of culture. We'll talk about this in a moment. This culture will be glorious and beautiful. And this is gonna take shape more fully in the rest of the book of Isaiah, and you're gonna see this as a consistent theme. But we find that this beautiful new reality that is offered to God's people comes in a very surprising and backwards way. The hope of Israel comes 
contrary to what they would expect. It's interesting, Isaiah could have used a metaphor like a massive tree or an impressive city or a powerful ruler. But instead, throughout the book of Isaiah, deliverance comes from something small and unimpressive. We're gonna see this in other texts like Isaiah 11 and verses one and two where it says, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit and the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Or Isaiah 53 will say, for he grew up before him as a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, he had no form or majesty that we should look on him and no beauty that we should desire him. Now, for those of us familiar with the story of the gospel, we know that this is talking about Jesus. We know that Jesus comes as a baby. He's rejected by religious leaders for his teaching. He dies on the cross and is resurrected on the third day. That, that's the message. That's where Isaiah is going to go. And that's why Isaiah is the most quoted book in the New Testament, because we hear rumblings of what we see in full in the New Testament. But imagine, if you're an Israelite, and you're part of this tiny little nation, and you have all of these major superpowers around you that are threatening and are scary and are nasty in what they do when they conquer people. Imagine, with all of that threat, what kind of leader or hero are you gonna look for? Imagine what kind of deliverance you would desire. And the whole message of the book of Isaiah is going to be about a coming savior who will be so different than what anyone could have imagined. So much of the message of Christianity and the hope of the gospel is backwards from how the world, how we in our humanity normally think. Just, just hear how the New Testament pictures what the essence of Christianity is. The humble are exalted. The proud are resisted, 1 Peter 5. Jesus, in his signature sermon in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who are persecuted. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says that God chooses the foolish and the weak in the world in order so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. This is the way that God works. Dads on this Father's Day, can I just speak to you, those of you who are Christian dads? Can I remind you that living out the model of Christ-likeness is an essential part of your discipleship strategy, whether you have young children or teenage children, adult children, whether you're a new dad or a grandpa? Brother dads, be careful. Let's not buy into the cultural value set that would tell us that true manliness is rugged individualism, self-sufficiency, conquering, and self-advancing strength. Can I remind you, there was no one more powerful, more manly, and more significant than this branch of the Lord, and our goal is to emulate him. Dad, let me just remind you, you are never more successful than when you look like Jesus. 
I'm thankful for a dad who modeled this in my home growing up. There's lots of things that I learned, but I learned about humility. I learned about strength. I learned about forgiveness. I learned about loving a wife as Christ loved the church. Who cares how much you can bench? Who cares how fast you are, how good you look, how tight your abs are, if you've got six or 12 abs? Who cares? <laughs> well, maybe you should care a little. <laughs> some of you haven't seen those abs in 45 years, but I'm just saying, <laughs> they're there. They're just hidden with some padding. But the fact of the matter is, is what really matters is who you look like. Who do you look like? The branch of the Lord, notice what this deliverer is gonna do. It says, he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. We get little whispers of Revelation 13, the Lamb's book of life here. We, we hear about cleansing, and we're gonna see this in full picture next week in Isaiah chapter six, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. The message of Isaiah is this, that there are individual and collective failures of God's people. Isaiah six will say, I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Both are true. And what this text is telling us is that the only hope, listen to me carefully, the only hope for individuals and the only hope for the collection of individuals, namely the society, is a divine cleansing, a change of heart that happens individually and then by implication collectively such that the whole society and culture changes. And the fact of the matter is society and culture can make little changes, but it will never be completely renewed until Jesus changes every heart and every life and every mind and makes sin no longer possible. That's why true and lasting change, whether it comes individually or collectively, comes from the inside out because of God's cleansing. That's the book of Isaiah. So in how you talk and how you relate to other people and how you conduct yourself at work and how you handle your money and how you care for the marginalized and how you advocate for justice, all of this flows out of a cleansed heart. The gospel is not Inessential. The gospel is essential and it has implications. The book of James. Then finally, we see the promise for the future. He says, The Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and a smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. You hear Exodus in there, right? Where God is leading his people. And over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. The idea is that God is going to create a new world. This canopy, something Joel 2 is connected here, that it's a wedding canopy. The idea is that the bride has been reunited with the groom. And what Isaiah does here is he shows us the thing that we long for. He shows us our our happy place, if you will, the kingdom that we're living for, the environment that is our target. It's, it's a reminder, Israel, this 
moment that you're in, the world that you're in, is not your final home. God wants to do something different. He wants a kingdom to come, his will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And by understanding that kingdom, then we can live rightly while realizing I need to live rightly in this world, but this world is not everything. You see, only the people who know about grace and the gospel and a coming kingdom can actually live in the world and be kind to other people and find ways to care for those who are on the outside and the marginalized and do it for all of the right reasons because they know I want his kingdom to come and his will to be done. So I serve now, not because I have to, but because of this king who is yet coming. Every once in a while, we get little tastes of that coming kingdom. Here's my little happy place. This is a run yesterday, a very slow run at Eagle Creek. I was listening to a biography on Eugene Peterson. I was running, the birds were chirping, and I was just like, God, I don't know exactly what heaven's gonna be like, but this is, this is pretty close. Can I just remind you of what kingdom Christians are supposed to live for? Can I ask you what value set, what kingdom marks your life? How does this vision shape what you love and what you think about and what you do? You see, what Isaiah does is he shows us this is what's wrong and this is the hope, and therefore he calls us to turn to turn in our big problems to a big God. And then the book ends, third, the book, these, the section ends with a warning. So it doesn't end like sunsets and roses and they live happily ever after. Isaiah's like, well, yeah, you live in a real world that's got big problems still. He's a prophet. He will not allow God's people to merely think about their mansion on a hilltop when they have a neighbor next door. Here's a list of things that Isaiah raises as concerns. Chapter five, let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. Verse two, he looked, looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Despite God's graciousness and his kindness, the people keep producing bad fruit. In chapter five, verses five to seven, God's going to remove his divine protection. Discipline is coming. Verse five, I will remove its hedge. It will be devoured. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled down. Verses eight through 10, they were guilty of just accumulating more and more and more. Woe to those who join house to house, field to field, until there's no more room. The idea of just unrelenting greed to accumulate more and more and more. Verses 11 to 17, there was this passion to party and to celebrate, never being satisfied, but always wanting more and more and more. Woe to those who rise early in the morning, verse 11, that they may run after strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. There's brazen acts of sinfulness regardless of what God thinks in verses 18 through 19. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood, who draw sin as with cart ropes. The idea is people are carrying around wheelbarrows of their own sinfulness, not regarding the fact that God sees it all. There's self-deception and moral blindness in verse 20. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. 
There's pride in verse 21, woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. And finally, they pursue dishonorable pursuits. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men in mixing drink who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deprive the innocent of his right. And then the text ends with a warning. Verse 26, he will raise a signal for the nations far away. He will whistle for them from the ends of the earth. The idea is God's gonna go, Assyria, come here. And he's gonna use Assyria to bring discipline on God's people. He says to Assyria, and the idea is calling them as an instrument of his divine discipline. The text ends, they will growl over it on that day like the growling of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and distress and the light is darkened by its clouds. Boom. That's how the chapter ends. If you want every chapter of Isaiah to end with optimism and hope, you're gonna be sadly disappointed. Isaiah ends with realism. He gives hope, but he also acknowledges, look, we live in a world that's got a lot of trouble. And so in light of this, let me just ask you a few concluding questions. Friend, what are your go-to idols? What are the things upon which you place your hope? What are the things that you place your emotional happiness? What are the things right now that you're placing your trust in? Or let me put it this way. What are the things that if taken away or when taken away, you'd feel hopeless and as though life weren't really worth living? Can I ask you, which kingdom do you really love? And for that matter, how does that kingdom translate into your life outside of this room? Next, what might God be using in your life right now in order to get your attention? And finally, how could we celebrate the cleansing of Jesus and live out the implications of that redemption and how we live? Because the great news of Isaiah is this. First, not much has changed since 700 B.C., Israel and Judah's issues look an awful lot like our issues. And the question that we all need to wrestle with is this. So who's going to help us with those issues? And praise God, those of us who live on the other side of the cross know that God has already answered that question, that when you have a big problem, you need a big God, and that's been fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, that he has no rival, he has no equal, that no one can triumph over the person and work of Jesus. So no matter where you are, how hard it's been, how difficult the discipline of God is in your life, the door is wide open for you to come to Jesus today or turn to him and say, I am sorry of my idols, I repent, I turn, I come, and he is ready and willing to receive you with open arms because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Yes, our world and the church and our lives have big problems. But Isaiah declares, we also have a big God. So Jesus, thank you for the help that the book of Isaiah is. And we pray that you would allow us to see glorious things 
about both who you are and what you have done for us and the person and the work of Christ through this glorious book. We pray that even today, we turn from our idols and turn to the living God. And we ask this in Jesus' name, our King. Amen.